Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. And along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, so much is happening in the world this week. We've got the Feast of Tabernacles happening around the world. We'll be talking to our friend Paul Scharf. Sharam Hadian's coming to talk about Iran. And we've got President Biden talking about nuclear Armageddon. What else could be happening this week? Jimmy, it is amazing. There are so many things. And, you know, when we were talking to our guests, there was just so many items to cover that we hardly had time to put it all into one hour and a half segment. But that's what we're going to do. That's right. Rick, and I've got to tell you, I always like how you interview and and the questions that you talk to our guests about. You thought these out. I'm looking forward to this week's program as we get uh, an update on geopolitical issues, issues from Israel, and uh, issues confronting the body of Christ today. Well, let's get started with our program today. Our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs. He is an analyst and an author of many books. You can find out more about him by going to kentimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, Ken, we've got many things to look at today, and most of them center around Russia. And I guess we'll start President Biden, uh, in a speech this week, warned of a nuclear Armageddon as it concerns Russia. The tensions are rising daily between the United States and Russia. And I think the risks that this war in Ukraine evolves or devolves, if you prefer, into a NATO-Russia direct confrontation are also growing. Mm. Uh, This is a dangerous situation. Uh, You have Putin, who has been threatening the use of nuclear weapons, and you have had Biden who is uh, saying that we will not stand by and we will not be intimidated. Uh, The problem, of course, is that Biden and his feebleness present an image of weakness. Putin understands this. Americans' allies in Europe understand this. The Europeans are not backing us in our support for Ukraine. They have not stepped up to the plate with weapons deliveries anywhere near to match ours. And in fact, Germany, as our listeners will recall, was dragging their heels for months at the beginning of the war and refusing to provide any kind of assistance to Ukraine. So this war is getting more dangerous. The Russians appear to be militarily, I don't want to say on the ropes, but they are certainly not winning the war and Ukrainian forces continue to advance. So we're again, we are entering a period of great danger. Well, last week you said something, and I've been thinking about it all week. You said that you're not sure that our leaders who are, we are backing Ukraine. Yes, we are certainly backing Ukraine, but when at all costs, what is going to happen? I mean, what does that look like for Russia? What if Ukraine does make advances? I mean, I don't know how this ends, and and I guess that's where I understand the, the nuclear threat. The use of nuclear weapons by Putin would be a way of breaking the logjam, of blowing open Mm. the war, if you wish, ending the stalemate that he has fought himself into. The Russians have lost just about all the territory that they gained in the earlier parts of the war in eastern Ukraine. And now they're beginning to be pushed out of those provinces that they had occupied beforehand. Uh, This is not good. And it's not clear that calling up those 300,000 reservists, a staggering number, as many people as are in the entire Ukrainian army, Hmm. it's not clear that that's going to change uh, the Russians' fate on the battlefield. These soldiers are arriving there ill-equipped 
oftentimes drunk. Most of them do not want to fight. Remember how many have been uh, men have been trying to flee Russia to anywhere to escape this conscription or being called back up uh, to their reserve duties. Uh, so it's not clear that he's going to get front line units again into Ukraine or be able to rebuild his forces. So what does Putin do? Does he resort to nuclear weapons to break the logjam? What is the end game? We have not seen an end game yet uh, be, be sketched out anywhere by the U.S. or by the Russian side. And Zelensky is essentially going for the maximum. He's saying uh, victory for us means reclaiming all of Ukrainian territory. Now, you might say that's not such a bad thing. It is their territory. Why shouldn't they reclaim it? But this is a war of wills. Remember, war is politics by other means. And Putin has been saying since 2014 that the eastern part of Ukraine is really Russian. So there is not a clear end game being sketched out here. There is not a compromise that one can see at this point. This war has to end with Russia-Ukrainian talks or, as Joe Biden is saying, in Armageddon. Russia's supposed weakness, perceived weakness, and like you said, not quite on the ropes, but almost on the ropes, that weakness is driving them to their allies, and their allies are not what we would call necessarily our friends. And so you look at a couple of their allies, Saudi Arabia and China, those relationships, those coalitions are strengthening, aren't they? They are uh, strengthening, Rick, and they're strengthening week by week. At the beginning of the war, the Saudis and and the Emiratis and most of the GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation countries, they refused to back the U.S. resolutions at the United Nations condemning Russia. And uh, while some of those countries have now come on board and have signed up to these resolutions, uh, still the Saudis in particular uh, have gotten increasingly close to Moscow. This week, you had the OPEC Plus meeting on Wednesday, where they agreed, now this is OPEC plus Russia, right? Where they agreed to cut back 2 million barrels a day of production. This is a very significant amount of oil to come off the market. It is double the amount that uh, the U.S. has been putting onto the market by releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Biden is essentially being mocked by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And that relationship uh, has soured, remember. The, the Democrats and Biden personally detest Mohammed bin Salman. They have a grudge against him because of the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, this, this pro-Qatar journalist who was hacked to death, literally hacked to death in the Saudi consulate uh, in Turkey uh, four or five years ago. And the Democrats have never forgiven him. Mohammed bin Salman believes that he has put it behind him. And we learned recently that he has a kind of fascination for Putin. Uh, in 2016, we've learned this from a British newspaper, The Observer, that in 2016, he actually called to personal counsel a number of UK diplomats, and for, including former heads of British intelligence, to tell him about Putin. What makes Putin tick? How does Putin stay on top of his game? Uh, how does he control Russia? And this fascination is now seeming to play itself out in world politics with this growing relationship, this growing alliance between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And in the meantime, and this will be the last thing I'd like to ask you about, but in the meantime, we look at our relationship with Iran and one of Biden's key 
objectives uh, since he became president is to restart the uh, nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, for some reason, against all sometimes reason, it feels like that he wants to restart that. And that is now taking place against the backdrop of the protests. You talked about it last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit later with our guest, Sharam Hadian. But uh, how is that? I mean, that is basically even further showing that we're not sure what we're doing on the world scene. Well, that, that's correct. And the protests are now in their third week, and uh, Biden has beaten Obama for silence. Uh, it was only mm. this week. Obama was silent for two weeks after the protests in 2009. Biden has been silent for three weeks and only broke his silence this week when he condemned the protests and when the uh, Treasury Department sanctioned a number of leaders of law enforcement agencies and the Revolutionary Guard for their role in uh, putting down the protests. Look, we're going to head for a lot more violence in Iran. They're cutting off the Internet. We talked about this last week. But the other thing that's going to happen is that the sanctions that we've placed on both Russia and Iran are driving the two of them together. And you now have Russian and Iranian officials getting together in Moscow to discuss oil swaps, gas swaps, mm. how Russia can get its oil to market through Iran, where they will essentially trade their oil to Iran and Iran will export their oil uh, elsewhere to Russian clients. In other words, to fulfill Russian contracts. We are going to turn through our sanctions and through our bumbling policy here of trying to get an Iran deal at whatever the cost, we're going to turn Iran into the biggest oil and gas export hub in the world. And that should not be a goal of U.S. policy. Absolutely not. Well, Ken, there's so many things taking place, uh, and they're all kind of intertwined, and they they revolve around these kind of triumvirate of uh, of Russia and China and Iran and Saudi Arabia. Just before you go, is there anything that you're looking at? Maybe something the next domino to fall. Is there anything that you're looking at that we, our listeners, should key into? And when that happens, that's definitely an area of concern. Look, I've been talking about the weakness of American leadership here uh, several times today. The Iranians see that very clearly, and they have accused the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia of provoking the unrest that we're seeing today inside Iran, these protests that are all across the country. And uh, again, this week, you had military leaders uh, just on Thursday officially accusing the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia of co-opting uh, the protest and stoking the protest and vowing to attack us if we did not stop. So you could see Iranian terror attacks against U.S. interests in uh, Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, perhaps also attacked against Israel, certainly uh, reviving that war in Yemen. The ceasefire has, has uh, petered out, basically it's ended. So I think you're going to see an increase in regional tensions in the coming weeks, and you will not find Russia on the sidelines. Iran is providing Russia with drones that they are not using very effectively in Ukraine, but nevertheless using up a lot of them. You will see Russia providing Iran with support well in this coming battlefield. Excellent analysis, as always, Ken. And these are certainly areas that we need to continue to keep an eye on. We thank you for doing that for us, and we look forward to continue talking to you in the future. Thanks so much, Rick, and God bless. Great interview, Rick. And as we've always said on this program, God uses world leaders to accomplish his will. That's Revelation 17, 17. 
And as we see world leaders making decisions, whether they be strong or weak, they are certainly making decisions that God wants them to make to accomplish his will. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, David Dolan and our Middle East News Update right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. During a recent meeting of the United Nations, India called on Pakistan to stop persecuting religious minorities. John Podaiti with Bibles for the World says it's an ironic statement. India is certainly moving up the ranks in terms of being a country where the, with increasing religious persecution, where it is harder and harder to be a Christian. And Again, as we've talked about many times, the anti-conversion laws being passed state by state across the country. India's majority religion is Hinduism. In Pakistan, Hindus often find themselves persecuted by the Muslim majority. In India, Muslims often face persecution. And Christians, who are minorities in both countries, find themselves caught in the crossfire. But people across India and Pakistan are continuing to encounter Jesus. So praise God for these new believers. And Western nations voice concern about extremist groups in Afghanistan. They're accusing the Taliban of not keeping its promises. An Islamic State affiliate increasingly targets mosques and minorities. Secret believers press on despite the risk. Hussein leads Heart for Afghanistan, an initiative of Heart for Iran. He talks often with Christians inside the country. One believer told him fear gave way to boldness long ago. He doing evangelism, talking with people around. And I said, please be careful because of the situation and your security. And he said, I'm not afraid of death or persecution because this is what the gospel taught me. It was very encouraging and also it was a challenge for me. Ask the Lord to protect his followers inside Afghanistan and pray they'll remain faithful despite persecution. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the segment of our program that we call the Middle East News Update. And joining us this week is Dave Dolan. He's an author, a journalist, lived in Israel for 30 years, and we are happy to have him on the program with us this week. Dave, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be with you, Rick. Well, David, there's a lot to get at, but we'll start off in Israel, specifically the north of Israel, Israel's border with Lebanon, and they've been having a dispute over a maritime border, and there's uh, gas involved. So there's there's a lot of things at work here. Can you tell us about that story? Well, yes, Rick. Uh, Once again, high tensions in the north of Israel uh, due to conflicts with Lebanon. Of course, this is the week that the Yom Kippur War started with Syria in the north and Egypt in 1973, so Israelis are marking that, looking at the possibility of another uh, major war coming. It's a complicated story. I'll try to summarize it as best I can, Rick, but it all has to do with this U.S.-led negotiations with Lebanon and Israel, the U.S. being the mediator, over a maritime border out in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, why do they need to demarcate that? Well, because a gas field was discovered, the Kana gas field, mm-hmm. several years ago. And uh, it's mostly in what would be Lebanese territory, if you 
put a straight line out from the coast, uh, but a part of it is in Israel's territory. Israel went ahead in June and moved a platform, the Karish oil platform, out to its section and has announced that it will start uh, pumping natural gas out of it fairly soon. But they were waiting for this agreement to be finalized And the news report said, and officials said it was 90% completed with just the remaining details to be made. And suddenly on Tuesday, the Lebanese government threw a complete spanner in the works, basically said, no, no, we need to go back and renegotiate some of these things. We're not going to accept this and that. And their main, uh, their main uh, protest was that it would recognize a string of buoys, a straight line, from um, the coast uh, just north of an Israeli town in the north of Israel, goes out about two to three miles, and it would recognize that as the border between the Lebanese area and the Israeli area. Well, Rick, that would be the first formal Lebanese uh, recognition of Israel in any Hmm. treaties or any negotiations. Lebanon is still officially at war with Israel from 1948. And um, and so, um, but the Lebanese government was anyway, they need this money badly from this uh, natural gas field. They've got a French company, Total Energy, that's going to develop it. They've already got signed agreements, etc. But then Hezbollah is, of course, part of the Lebanese government. They're under the thumb, well, they were set up and are funded totally by Iran. Iran doesn't want to see any sort of formal Lebanese recognition of anything to do with Israel. So Hezbollah has been protesting that part of it for months and threatening. And we talked about a couple months ago, they sent uh, several drones towards that platform, uh, threatening to attack it. And Israel shot them down and whatever. So there's already been some military action. But apparently Hezbollah has prevailed inside the Lebanese government to get them to ask for renegotiations of various parts and to say we won't recognize that uh, buoy boundary. Um, There's other things. I won't go into all the weeds there. But Prime Minister Lapid of Israel announced on Thursday that these new demands went way beyond what the agreement could tolerate, that it was like reopening the negotiations from the start, basically. And he said, this is provocative and we won't accept it. More importantly, the Israeli defense minister, Benny Gantz, who was at a ceremony marking the the, uh, Yom Kippur War, um, he said that uh, he instructed the defense establishment, quote, to prepare for any scenario in which tensions increase in the northern arena, including defense and offense readiness, meaning they may have to take some action themselves. Well, this came after Lapid, as I said, rejected these uh, new demands as being, you know, way over the top. And we've already decided on these things. And now you're going back on them, basically, is what he said. Well, Benjamin Netanyahu, who, uh, by the way, was hospitalized on Yom Kippur with chest pains, he was praying and fasting at a synagogue with his family and taken to uh, a hospital in Jerusalem and uh, stayed overnight. And they did a bunch of heart tests, uh, cardiac tests on him. And he was released on Thursday morning. He says he's fine. He took a picture of himself walking in a park. But he has been very critical of Lapid. Uh, for some of the previous uh, agreements 
that uh, Lapid had signed on to, that the U.S. had negotiated, including that basically this would be a Lebanese gas field that Israel could tap into because part of it's in its area. He criticized that. He said Lebanon's going to mess us up on that. Israel was supposed to get some royalties from the Lebanese side. Again, a lot of weeds there. But but he strongly urged uh, Lapid to reject these new demands that were being made by Lebanon. And um, uh, uh, basically, Lapid has done that. So we'll see what happens now. But the security cabinet is meeting to discuss the situation Again, full uh, military alert in the north. And again, we have to trace this back to Iran, Rick. They really control uh, at least a good portion of the Lebanese government. They don't want any recognition of Israel in any form, shape, or way, even if this development of this gas field is vital to Lebanon's crumbling economy. Of course, Israel could use the income as well, but they have other fields further south that are clearly off of Israeli territory only. And, you know, this Karish platform, it's about 50 miles off of uh, the port of Haifa, is not vital for them to um, carry on with this work. But they have a right to part of it, at least, they're saying. And and, uh, Hezbollah is saying, no, no way. We don't want to have any recognition of you. So, So there we go. And Rick, it comes as Iran, the Iranian supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, this week blamed Israel and the United States for the continuing and growing, we're hearing, unrest in Iran. Of course, that after a, a Kurdish, a young Kurdish woman was basically beaten to death by the morality police in Iran after her hijab head covering was not properly put on her head, according to them. And they they ripped it off and arrested her. And she died in custody after being heavily beaten. And Khamenei says this is Israel's fault and America's fault. And that they're in there trying to stir up trouble, trying to get the masses to revolt. He said, you know, this is an act of war and all these sorts of things. So we're very much at the edge of a potential major clash here uh, with Lebanon being the flashpoint, but with Iran maybe seeking a reason to divert attention inside of its country from these riots that are going on. That's what Khamenei called them, riots. Of course, there are massive protests all over the country. They're mostly young women who are, you know, objecting to all these strict Islamic rules that have been in place for decades now. And Israel has nothing at all to do with any of that, of course, nor the United States. But that's who they're blaming. And and it's a serious situation indeed. Well, it seems like there's a confluence of events taking place, a lot of pieces in play here. The Lebanese government, uh, the cash strap situation that they're in, and then you have Iran looking to divert attention. It does seem like many components are coming together into what could be a major conflict. Well, it does, Rick. And, you know, with Hezbollah, as with Hamas, as with Islamic Jihad, their bottom line is Israel doesn't have a right to exist. It must disappear. Khamenei repeated that. He called it the occupying state. In other words, Israel being there at all is occupying uh, other people's territory, not its own. And this has been their line all along. And Hezbollah is very radical in its anti-Israel stance. So yes, a U.S. brokered agreement um, is anathema to them. 
and they've been fighting against it for some time. Netanyahu is not against an agreement, of course. He would like to see one, but he's saying we've already given too many, or Lapid, uh, the current government, has given too many concessions to uh, Hezbollah, essentially, to Iran, essentially, and uh, we don't want this. And, of course, Hezbollah hates the United States as well as Iran does. And, of course, this comes as OPEC, uh, led basically by Russia, announced uh, this oil cutback, production cutback this week, uh, which Saudi Arabia very much backs, showing one more time that the Saudis and other American allies are moving away from Washington, Mm. not towards it, under the Biden administration. So as U.S. power weakens, uh, Iranian and radical Islamic power increases, and even moderate Arabs are looking like, hmm, do we really want to stick with the U.S. in this one? And so this U.S. negotiated agreement, been many, many months in the making, uh, it looks like it's falling apart. And um, that's just another sign that uh, U.S. policy in the region is not quite on track. So many things going on in Israel, in the Middle East, and the world. You do a good job of explaining it to them, but it is so complicated. So we appreciate you doing that. We look forward to talking to you again soon, David. I try to do the best I can. Thanks, Rick. God bless. We have to take a break right now, but stay with us right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And one of the nations that we have been focusing on for a long time, because it is in Bible prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 38 lists the nation of Persia. Up until 1937, Persia is today known as Iran. And we have focused on this nation, Rick. I sent you uh, this article, and we've been watching the scene going on there in Iran this week, not only because of for, for the political regime and how it's been run by extremists and extreme Islam uh, as it's moving and making decisions and, and oppressing its people, but we've seen a movement of uh, basically beginning with women, um, and it's a youth movement, and now it's really spreading. I think this could have some far-reaching implications uh, in in what's going on in the Middle East, don't you? Oh, I certainly do, and I'm really eager to hear what Sharam has to say about not only the facts on the ground from what he knows, from what his contacts are, but I'm, I'm really excited to hear about the Christian community. I know that there's some growth there in the Christian community, the actual born-again believer 
Christian community, and I'm excited to hear what Sharam has to say about that. And, of course, we're referring to Sharam Hadian. Sharam's going to come. He's been on this program before, and he is. Uh, he was born in Iran. He's escaped with his family before uh, at the uh, uh, when the Shah was deposed. So here we go. Let's talk to Sharam about what is taking place in Iran and how it affects us today. Sharam Hadian joins me today. He is a Christian pastor, former Muslim. Uh, Sharam was born in Iran, came to America to escape an oppressive Islamic regime, has got a great testimony and a great story, and he's here to talk about the Iranian protests. Sharam, thank you for joining us. Rick, thanks for having me on. It's always a blessing to be on with you. Well, I kind of alluded to your history, to your testimony, but if you could, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about what you went through, and then uh, also about your ministry? Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm a former Muslim. I was was born in Iran. Then we fled Iran right before uh, the 1979 coup-slash-revolution and, uh, you know, got out just in the nick of time. My dad was in the military under the Shah of Iran, and so we kind of lived through that period uh, of a pre-1979 Iran versus the post-1979 Iran. I was raised in a Muslim home. On my mom's side, was very devout and fundamentalist, not so much on my dad's side. Uh, and from a, from a very young age, I had questions about God, about salvation, about personal relationship, and uh, there was no good answer in Islam. But we left Iran. I grew up again as a Muslim, but then at 28 years old, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit began to bring people into my life, uh, Christians who were bold enough to actually share the gospel with me, which began to really work on me um, and and began to tear down uh, lies and misconceptions that I had believed about Christianity as a Muslim and uh, opened my heart to the truth. In June of 1999, almost 23 years ago, I left Islam and, and, and gave my life completely to the Lord Jesus mm. Christ, to, to Christ, and mm. uh, been, been following him since, uh, been, been a pastor since about 2003, uh, so now almost going on 20 years. And our ministry is truth and love. That's what our ministry is called from Ephesians 4.15. And Rick, we are called to speak the truth and love and address all of these issues that the Bible addresses and continue to proclaim the truth and the gospel to the very ends of the earth, especially in the day and age that we see so much compromise of the truth and of the word of God. So that's kind of the the, the gist of, 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 the, of, the, of the story. Well, powerful testimony, as all testimonies are, but uh, just hearing about how you got out of Islam and now uh, running a ministry, fantastic testimony, fantastic story. Well, your history in Iran is what interests us on the program today, as I really wanted to get you on here. I appreciate you coming on, but I really wanted to get you on here. We've been talking about these Iranian protests. Uh, It's essentially a protest against that oppressive Islamic regime there, Uh, just Kind of give me your overview. What is taking place, and is the media getting it right? Is the media getting it wrong? What, from your vantage point, your specific vantage point, uh, what is going on there in Iran? What is happening in Iran is started as a protest, but is now full on revolution. This is a mm. full on revolution now, equivalent to the movement of 1979. That, of course, in my opinion, was an an actual coup because. That there was deception among the Iranian people back then to think that that was a revolution, but but this is a legitimate revolution of the Iranian people. What started 
you know, about 17, 18 now, maybe 20 days ago with a young uh, uh, 22-year-old girl who was killed by the morality police, beaten, uh, had brain damage, uh, Mahsa Amini, then turned into protest, then went to over 160 cities, now is in every province of Iran. Every province of Iran has, has, has not only protests, but full-on strikes. The Iranian people are trying to shut down uh, basically daily life to say, this is it. Uh, they are shouting on the streets, down with the dictators or death to the dictators. Mm-hmm. Down, to, so it's not just about the hijab, which is what it, you know what it appeared to start as. Uh, it is not just about the the Western media is, is saying things like, oh, they're 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 fighting for economic freedom or they're fighting for you know against the sanctions. No, 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 no. This is a full on now. We are done with Islam. We are done with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And Rick, people have to understand Iran is not Islamic. That's part of the thing that people have to understand, too, is that this is a Persian culture, a Persian history. The Iranian people are not Arabs. And so we have a rich 27, 2800, almost 3000 year history, Bible history. But there is, of course, great uh, suffering and pain. Uh, I think the accurate numbers are close to 500 protesters have been killed. Uh, thousands have been have been arrested. Thousands, 15,000, maybe more. This is a brutal, brutal, evil uh, regime that will stop at nothing. And, and I'm, I firmly believe, Rick, that there's no way this regime would be standing unless it was propped up by particularly the West, particularly, I think, by this administration mm-hmm. in the White House right now. So true. Well, uh, we just have a few more minutes here, but if there was a, a kind of a broader lesson to take from all this, and of course, we have faced religious persecution in this country, but nothing to the extent what they're facing there. It's amazing for you to tell me that the, the Christian community is growing under this persecution. Kind of reminds me of the old Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. When the persecution comes in, it really puts your faith to the fire, your faith to the test, and, and the church can sometimes thrive in that situation. But what can we do? You you mentioned earlier about prayer and moral support. In your eyes, what can we do to support the people of Iran, and, and especially the Christian community in Iran? Well, I think that's a great question. I, I think practically, pray for the Iranian people. We pray for the leadership, and we pray that God will use all of this for his good and ultimately to lead the Iranian people to Christ. I think there's something special that is going on. So we got to pray for the Persian people, pray for them to come to Christ, pray for the revival to continue, pray for protection because so many are being killed or imprisoned, but then also pray for America. Because as you said, Rick, the American church has not truly experienced persecution. Um, and now we are starting to see the birth pangs of that, particularly that governmental persecution. Um uh, you know, where the government is coming after Bible-believing Christians and, mm. and, and, and such. So that's the lesson for America. We better wake up. We better wake up because what happened in Iran, 79, is happening here in America. And they, they've lived under that 44 years. And we are facing some difficult times here in, in our nation if we don't wake up soon and pray that God will uh, turn us back to him and, and have a a revival. So thank you again for being able to cover this 
and, and just put light on this uh, where so many in the media are not. Well, and thank you for joining us on the program. And you have offered some excellent words of encouragement, some words of advice, and some hope. You're talking about the Christian community there uh, and, and, and the what you think is possibly even a likelihood that that uh, brutal, oppressive Islamic regime could be toppled. But then again, where do we go from there? We need to make sure that we are continuing to grow and continuing to disciple and focus on the Christian community. Well, if our listeners want to know a little bit more about you and your ministry, can you just let us know one more time where they can go? Absolutely. If they can just go to our website, uh, TILproject.com, the TIL for stands for Truth of Love, TILproject.com. We have lots of information about the ministry. Thank you again for being willing to cover this topic and for having me on, Rick. It is always such a blessing to partner with the ministry. And um, I pray that God will continue to bless you guys and continue to get this message out to as many who have ears to hear. Well, likewise, Sharam, thank you for being on the program. And thank you for your ministry as well. Uh, We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Well, Sharam Hadian really does give us an understanding because he was born there. He's lived it. uh, His family was there. So, yes, he gives us a good understanding of what is taking place in Iran. And and regardless of the regime, uh, the political aspect uh, of what's going to take place in the future, there are believers that are there that we need to continue to pray for uh, during this troublesome time. And as we have seen today, and there are troublesome times everywhere around the world, uh, mostly for sure in all these countries that pertain to Bible prophecy. Well, this is a time in Israel right now where Israel is has just passed through uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, they started off at the three fall feasts, which would have been Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the, the New Year. We talked about that last weekend. Uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, uh, and the Jewish people take those days very serious. And we're starting and going into the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. It is the seventh and last feast that the Lord commanded Israel to observe. And one of the three feasts that the Jews were to observe each year by going to appear before the Lord, your God, in the place which he shall choose. That was one of the pilgrim feasts. Three times a year, the male Jews were required to go to the city of Jerusalem. And so today I thought it would be really important for us to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, as it can be seen in how many places it's mentioned in Scripture. And I thought nobody better to do that than our friend, Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Jimmy. It's wonderful to be with you. Yes, and I know that uh, you work with Friends of Israel. You're writing articles for Israel My Glory, which we'll talk about in the future, but I'm so excited for your ministry and what you do. And uh, so let's just talk about uh, Now, what they do in Israel today is they will build their booths or their sukkahs out on the the porches or their uh, balconies, and they will celebrate, as they did uh, in Old Testament times, the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll eat out there. So tell us a little bit, Paul, of what you can about the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Jimmy, the Feast of Tabernacles is so incredibly important in the Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, and also, some may be surprised to learn, in the prophetic future, Mm. 
And so it just sort of vibrates all through Scripture with just incredible significance from the first time that it's introduced in the giving of the law in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 16, where it's called the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. And then there is also much more information given within the law of God in the book of Leviticus, the feast chapter that details the the seven major feasts that you've alluded to here. And uh, this uh, feast of tabernacles is described in Leviticus 23, 33, really through the end of the chapter. And then there's also very detailed instruction in Numbers 29 verses 12 through 38, which gives a day-by-day listing of what the people were to do during the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's all just in the law and uh, related to what the people of Israel were to do, as you said, when all the males were to appear before the Lord at this special feast. So we see how important the Feast of Tabernacles, and like you said, it was the last of the seven feasts, the holidays. Uh, Sometimes we refer to them as holy days, but those were the holidays of God that God really put and said, look, take a time out, and this is what I want you to do. Yeah, and it's so interesting uh, to read these uh, prescriptions in the law for what the children of Israel were to do on this very, very special and unique feast, uh, Jimmy. And we find uh, something that I'd like to tie together to another thought a little bit later here, is that Deuteronomy 16.14 makes it clear, though all the males were to appear, especially at this feast, along like Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, we find that Tabernacles is really a feast for the whole family. It's Mm. a family celebration. Deuteronomy 16.14 And it was a time of blessing and a time of joy and rejoicing. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's so true. Even still today, it is, uh, uh, you know, a time of blessing and rejoicing for the whole family. The whole family goes out. uh, If you're staying in a hotel, they will provide you a, uh, a sukkah to eat your meals in. That's what the families do today. It's a very family oriented atmosphere uh, and the, the whole family celebrates in this uh, in gathering. I like the way you said it. So uh, what else could you tell us about the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, something very interesting, Jimmy, and this is uh, just a little bit of a rabbit trail from our trek through the scriptures, but we want to be sure to include this point. Uh, just as the Feast of uh, Tabernacles was a family celebration for the people of Israel in the Hebrew Bible and a time of joy and rejoicing and a harvest festival. Uh, and you've used this word earlier in our interview, Jimmy, the word pilgrim. Mm. And uh, this is something I have a real passion for is learning about our Thanksgiving pilgrims at the ah. dawn of our country in America. And, of course, they based their Thanksgiving celebration on this Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, so we can relate, uh, because probably everyone listening has participated in a Thanksgiving dinner, and that gives us a little bit of an illustration of what it would have been like for the Jewish people as well to go 
to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, that is so true. And we have brought that up in the past. I'm glad you brought that up because those early pilgrims, that's how they modeled it after uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, Paul, like all feasts, was instituted by God as a way of reminding Israelites and every generation of their deliverance by God from Egypt. And of course, these feasts right. are so significant in that they foreshadow the work and actions of the coming Messiah. Much of Jesus' public right. ministry took place in conjunction with the holy feast set forth by God. How do we see the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament? Well, we see it very clearly, Jimmy, in the life of the Messiah, Jesus, when he became flesh and dwelt among us. John mm. one fourteen. Uh, literally the idea of tabernacling among us, living temporarily among us. Now, his the human flesh that he took on himself was not temporary. He became forever a member of the human race when he came from heaven to earth to be our Savior. Mm. But he came, and for just a time he lived among us, as it were, tabernacling among us, reminiscent of the children of Israel live living in booths in tabernacles only temporarily and for a purpose each year at this special feast and then Jimmy we see also Jesus in his last year uh, before going to the cross very clearly celebrating the feast of tabernacles in John chapter 7 we see that in verse 2 and we see what Jesus did two very important things that he did at that Feast of Tabernacles that are in line not so much with what the Old Testament says about this feast in the law, but with Jewish traditions that had developed related to uh, pouring out water Mm -hmm. to illustrate dedication to God and also illuminating the temple. And at this feast, Jesus and John 7 verses 37 through 39, that famous passage where it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And uh, he goes on in that context that people can look at in John seven thirty-seven through 39. He's drawing there on scriptures such as uh, Isaiah 12, 3 and 55, 1 and Zechariah Thirteen, one that talk about this idea of water flowing to show the blessing of God. And he also, at that same Feast of Tabernacles, before he goes to the cross the following spring, he stands up in John 8, verse 12, and says, I am the light of the world. And that, of course, is drawing on this custom that the Jewish people had, a very elaborate method of illuminating the temple Mm. during the Feast of Tabernacles by Jesus' day. Mm. That is so, it's there's so many, as I think back, and I'm sure people are are sitting there thinking of other passages, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, um, you know, and and that was six months before Christ was to be in the city of Jerusalem. Six months before, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. You remember that episode up at Caesarea Philippi? He then takes Peter, James, and John, and he had told them, some of you will not die till you see me in my glory. 
He took Peter, James, and John onto mm. a high mountain, and Peter wanted to build. He thought the Feast of Tabernacles was begin- beginning because mm. he wanted to yeah. build, you know, three sukkahs, one for Elijah, one for Jesus, and one for Moses. So, you know, like as you look at the, 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 those three men there, uh, Peter got way ahead of himself and, and uh, of course, didn't understand it. But the Feast of Tabernacles is not only something that was celebrated in the past— it's celebrated today, although Israel, as they celebrate it, let me remind people, Israel today, as they celebrate it, doesn't do anything for God. Right, Paul? I mean, the very first thing that a Jewish person could do that God will recognize will be his act of calling out to Jesus Christ as the true Messiah for salvation, correct? Well, Jimmy, that is so true. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Yes. He is the one who tabernacled among us. He is the one who offers to us the living water. He is the one who offers to us the light of the world. And though it's wonderful for us even to learn about what the Jewish people do to this very day to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, it's wonderful for them to Uh, continue and maintain that heritage and all that we can learn from it but the the ultimate issue as you've said is finding the life the light the living water of the messiah himself who comes to offer us the very glory of god exactly exactly and i I just want to remind people and, and the feast again were given to the jewish people I know a lot of churches today want to celebrate the feast, but they were given to the Jews. And and the reason I bring this up, Paul, because in the future, one of the feasts that's going to continue on into eternity is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's right, Jimmy. There's only going to be four feasts celebrated in the coming millennial kingdom. And one of them, one of them is the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, amazingly, listed in Ezekiel 45, verse 25. Mm. It's spoken of there as one of these four millennial feasts or holidays. But the passage that really, and I'll never forget, Jimmy, when I first really understood this passage, and just it's just like uh, opening up uh, a truth about something amazing that will happen during the Millennial Kingdom. In Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, mm. it talks about this time, it's not just going to be all the males of Israel that need to go to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, Jimmy, but it's going to be all the nations of the earth mm. that are going to have to go up to celebrate the the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and mo- most specifically the great king, to worship him. And there will be chastening on those who refuse to go to celebrate the Feast of Booths in the coming millennial kingdom, which will be really the ultimate fulfillment of Christ tabernacling with his people. Wow. Good things to think about. Again, uh, Zechariah chapter 14 talks about that future when we will celebrate it. And look, if people don't go during the millennial kingdom, there will be no rain. So everyone will be commanded to go where Jesus Christ will be seated on his earthly throne in the city of Jerusalem. 
in the place of Mount Moriah, God's holy mountain, that spot that through history had played an important part at the top of Mount Moriah. In the future, that's going to be the place where Jesus Christ with co-regent King David will be there in the city of Jerusalem. Paul, I'm looking forward to that time. You and I will be there as uh, Bride of Christ will be the queen of uh, uh, of as Jesus is the king over the Jewish people. But we will look forward to that time into the future, correct? That is so correct, Jimmy. And you know what's even another final element of all of this? Uh, the word that John used back in John one fourteen for dwelling with uh, Christ, dwelling with his people, is used four more times all in the book of Revelation. Mm. And uh, there's one special reference where it's used in chapter 21, verse 3, where it talks about the fact that God himself will be with him. Uh, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. Wow. And uh, so God for eternity will be living, as it were, in a tabernacle with his people uh, who have trusted in him through all the ages here of history on this earth. We looked at it from a Jewish point of view, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, and into the future at the Feast of Tabernacles. Paul Scharf, his ministry. Paul, give us your website where people can go and see some of your daily postings and your sermons. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I'm privileged to serve as a church ministries representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. And you can learn lots more about our ministries and our history in the Friends of Israel at foi.org. And my personal webpage where I post all of the resources that I produce on a regular basis and share, where you can always contact me and find all my information, that's at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, P-S-C-H-A-R-F. Mm. Thank you, Paul, so much for being with us today. We look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much, Jimmy. It's been a great privilege. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with my father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, a very popular series of hearing Dr. Jimmy DeYoung teach, and that's why we call it the Legacy Series. Coming up soon, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Back to Prophecy Today, I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, if people are interested in studying Bible prophecy, where's the best place for them to go to find prophecy material? Well, Jimmy, I may be a little biased on that subject, but I think it's our website, prophecytoday.com. We have a bookstore. We have many different materials that you can look at that kind of put together our whole program for how we study Bible prophecy. Or if you want the ultimate Bible prophecy study, you go to our website and look up our tours. The perfect classroom to teach Bible prophecy is the nation of Israel. For all that is happening there, we look at Israel past, present, and prophetic. That's our prophecytoday.com and Joshua Travel Tours to Israel. Today on the Legacy Series, we begin a new study on the subject of angels. This is one of the most fascinating studies that uh, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, has ever done. I hope our friends will be blessed by our look into the book, into the Bible, on the subject of angels. 
I must remind everyone of the importance of angels at the first coming of Jesus Christ, and they're even more a part of the second coming of Christ back to the earth. In fact, the most used word in the book of Revelation is angel, or it's plural, angels. Therefore, we begin our study on angels in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Take your Bible and let's go to the book of Revelation, if you will. The book of Revelation has one word that is prominent throughout its pages. And that word is used in the very first verse, in the very first chapter, and it is the word angel. Look again at chapter 1 of the book of Revelation and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Angel are the plural angels, the most used word in the book of Revelation. It is used some 81 times. Here in chapter 1, it also mentions that the seven stars that we saw in his right hand, chapter 1, verse 16, are the seven angels of the seven churches. That's chapter 1, verse 20. In chapters 2 and 3, the letter to each of the churches is given to and unto the church at Ephesus unto the angel of that church. At chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 8, unto the angel of the church at Smyrna. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, and unto the angel of the church at Pergamos. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 18, unto the angel of the church at Thyatira. Chapter 3, verse 1, unto the angel of the church at Sardis. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 7, unto the angel of the church at Philadelphia. Verse 14, unto the angel of the church of Laodicea. And so we see angels were prevalent in the time of the church age, even at the time when John wrote the book in 95 AD. Angels were very, very important in the first coming of Jesus Christ. The other day I stood at the location where Jesus Christ, and we've authenticated this by a study of the Word of God, that the location where Jesus Christ was actually born. It was not in the little village of Bethlehem, but in the town borders of the city of Bethlehem, actually in the shepherd's fields, in a place called Migdal Adar, which was a two-story stone tower in the fields where the chief shepherd of the priestly shepherds there in the shepherd's fields would watch over the flocks because those sheep there that were born in those fields were only three miles away from the temple and they were destined to go to the temple to be the sacrificial lambs offered at the temple. And so the shepherd's fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lambs. Do you hear what I just said? Shepherd's fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lamb. And Jesus was born in those fields in this two-story stone tower called Migdal Adar, Micah uh, chapter 4 and verse 8. But I stood at that spot, and I started to allow my mind to imagine what it must have been like that night. I looked up in the clear sky as high as I could see. If I'd have been there that night, there would have been angels. Across the horizon, my peripheral vision would have shown me angels. Angels played a key role in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Evil angels, evil angel living in a human body is referred to as a demon. A demon is an evil angel in a human body. Jesus went throughout the Galilee 
casting out demons in people that were there wanting to come and serve him. When Jesus Christ was at the time of temptation there in the wilderness, angels came to minister to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, angels came to minister to him. He told Peter, after he cut off the ear of the high priest, I could call 12 legions of angels. We're talking about 72,000 angels. He could have called just like that if he needed to. Angels were key players in the time of Christ. And then as they move into the church age, you see that angels are addressed at each of the churches. Now, the word is angelos, is the Greek word meaning angel, sometimes transfer, uh, excuse me, translated as messenger, but mass majority of the time is angels. So there were angels in those churches. When you come over into chapter 4, you see that there are angels in the throne room. I call these the throne room angels. There are seraphim angels, as revealed to us in Isaiah chapter 6. There are cherubim angels that are introduced to us in Ezekiel chapter 1. But here in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, the four angels that he saw singing holy, holy, holy 24-7 are the throne room angels because they're a combination of the description given to the other two types of angels. When you move into the seal judgments, Jesus Christ delivers those judgments. But when you go to chapter 8, go to chapter 8 just a moment, and you start to see unfolding the trumpet judgments, which would be in the second half of the tribulation period. Verse 7, and the first angel sounded. And then in verse 8, and the second angel. And so angels deliver these trumpet judgments that take place at the second half of the tribulation period. When you go into uh, chapters 9 and 11, you'll continue to see the trumpet judgments, angels delivering this. Let me just show you also what happens at the midway point of the tribulation. In verse 12, there's going to be a battle in the heavenlies between the good angels and the evil angels. The good angels led by Michael the archangel and the evil angels led by Satan. We'll come back and look at that. Back in chapter 9, there's going to be a 200 million person or creatured angel attack upon the earth. And we'll look at that momentarily. Come to chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. You see that angels deliver these vile judgments. Verse 12. And the first angel went out and poured out his vial upon the earth. And then the third angel, the second angel, the fourth angel, fifth, sixth, and seventh, these angels are delivering what is going to happen. When you go over to chapter 20, you see that an angel is delegated the responsibility to bind Satan for a thousand years. Under the authority of the Lord, he binds Satan for that thousand year period of time. Uh, when we move into the area of the New Jerusalem, when we see the description of the New Jerusalem, there will be angels at each of the 12 gates that enter the New Jerusalem, chapter 21 and verse 12. So angels play a key role as they did in the first coming, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other areas in Revelation that I could point to that angels are playing this key role, uh, but will not take the time to do that. Go back to the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, and let's just think about angels for a few moments. Ad additional operations of angels during this time. 
angels play a key role in your life today. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, it says this, Are they not, he's referring to angels here, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? And that would be us, all of us, heirs of salvation, one who are going to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Angels are going to minister to us, and they're designated for that responsibility to minister to us. Look at Matthew 18 just a moment. Matthew 18 lays out exactly one aspect of the angelic activities that are taking place today. Chapter 18 and verse 10. He's talking about the little children, and Jesus said, Allow the children of the little children to come unto me. Now look at verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. These are what we would refer to as guardian angels. It's referring here to the little children that they have guardian angels. And then each of these angels will stand before God the Father in the heavenlies on a daily basis to respond to him for their responsibility of watching over the children. Of course, I said that we have four children. We have eight grandchildren. We have two great-grandchildren. Had it not been for guardian angels, all those kids would have been dead by now. And you know that as well with your own children. I can uh, just uh, give you a testimony after testimony how our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, Judy and myself, have been kept from harm's way by guardian angels dispatched out of the heavenlies to protect us. Guardian angels. Many, many stories. I'll never forget the death of uh, Judy's mom. She was in her early 90s when she died. We all were standing there at the hospital We thought that she had passed into eternity. We weren't quite sure. All of a sudden, a precious little black lady who had a nurse's outfit on walked into the room. She looked at Judy's mom. She looked at us and she said, she's not there. She's gone home. And then she disappeared. We asked to see that little nurse again. They didn't know of any little nurse that worked at the hospital like that. And so, you know, we believe that it was an angel sent to give us assurance. Angels. There are many, many stories, but angels are real. Angels are, angels are in this room right now. Go to chapter 11 of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's talking about the church services, talking about communion at a church service. And in the context, in verse 10, it says... For this cause ought the women to have power on their head because of the angels. Angels come to places like this to learn wisdom. They're learning wisdom from the body that is here in this room as they try to conform to the image of the Lord as found in God's word. Angels are participating in the activities here. They're unseen spirits. You can't see them, but there are angels in this room right now. Angels are fellow servants of ours. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Angels are fellow servants of ours today. Very interesting. Look at verse 8. Revelation 22 verse 8. Remember in chapter 1 verse 1, 
the Lord delegated, Jesus Christ delegated an angel to give the message to John the Revelator. He concludes, he's at the conclusion of his giving of the book of Revelation here in chapter 22 and verse 8. And I, John, saw the things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. John is now going to start to worship the angel. But look at what the angel says. Then saith he unto me, see thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant. I am thy fellow servant. Angels come alongside of us to minister with us in different ways that we can really not understand, but angelic help is available to us, fellow servants with us. That is exciting to me. Angels are fellow servants with us as we serve the Lord. As we have learned in this study, angels play a major role in our lives and they will play a key role in the second coming of Jesus Christ back to the earth. On the broadcast next week, we'll see how this all plays out in the future. This is indeed a must-study for Christians today. Please join us next week as we continue our study on angels. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book. We're going to talk about our thoughts today. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Tragedy struck yesterday when a gunman entered a child care center in northeastern Thailand and killed at least 36 people, most of them young children. It's the deadliest massacre Thailand has seen of this kind. Child Evangelism Fellowship serves gospel hope to kids around the world, including Thailand. Tony Villanueva, Child Evangelism Fellowship's Senior Associate Director of International Ministry, says they're grieving with the nation. Join us in asking God to be near brokenhearted families in Thailand. Meanwhile, Bibles for China has begun operating in a new region of the country, one previously closed off to their work. This new project comes at a time when many other provinces have slowed down their work with the ministry. On October 16th, the Chinese Communist Party will hold a crucial Congress. Kurt Rovenstein says ministry in China requires constant change, so ask God to encourage Chinese believers as they tell the story of Jesus. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com.
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the time of the program, Rick, where we take a look back. We try to collect our thoughts as to this really running through the geopolitical aspect of the world, decisions that world leaders are making uh, here in America, in Iran, in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, in China. Uh, all over the world, in the Middle East. And then, of course, uh, we're looking at the Feast of Tabernacles that we talked with Paul Scharf on. What are, your, what are your thoughts on today's program? Well, Jimmy, one of the things that really struck me is the fact that so many things are happening all at once. If you look at Europe, you look at the European Union, you look at Russia, and it seems like with that nuclear threat, it just makes everything so much more intense. You look at Iran, and you see the protests that are going on there, and it seems like that could be the match that sets something off. But if you look at the events that are going to take place in the end time, it seems like they could just go immediately. And and one thing that Sharam Hadian said is it's just in God's timing. I mean, it could happen tomorrow, the events that God has set forth to take place in the future, but it's just in God's timing. It seems like he's just holding off. Yes. You know, and this is not the first time in history where we have felt like we've been at the threshold of, uh, you know, you could go back, especially if you go back to 1948. And I've always, now I wasn't alive, Rick, and you weren't either, uh, <laughs> but we do know people and we've talked to people when Israel became a nation again, people thought the next day that the rapture was going to take place. It wasn't God's timing. Go through history from that beginning point on. We could talk about other points in history. As we have been doing this program over the last 20 years with our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, you and I have been working on it, producing it, being involved with it. We have been on the threshold of, wow, I mean, how can the rapture not be today or in the next few moments? And today, again, we're here at that point where we're watching, but we do understand uh, and really, if we believe in an imminent event, the rapture could have taken place immediately after Christ ascended into the heavenlies, after his resurrection in the city of Jerusalem, he ascended into the heavenlies. That's Acts chapter 1. Church begins in Acts chapter 2, but really, if you believe in an imminent event of his, the rapture could have happened immediately after he ascended into the heavenlies. But 2,000 years later, it hasn't happened. And it might not happen for another 20 years, Rick. You and I, as we look at this, man, it's going to happen uh, tomorrow or today or in the next few moments. But we do know that the only thing that has to happen, as far as when we look at Bible prophecy, there are very few things. There's nothing that needs to happen before the rapture of the church takes place. What is it? Well, Second Peter Peter says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the beginning of prophecy starts to unfold you know, the, after the rapture of the church. So what is God waiting for? Well, he's moving all the parts and pieces in place, as we've seen today. And then, of course, he's waiting for people to come to know him uh, as the Heavenly Father, as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Jesus Christ that died on the cross, the Lamb that took away all sin for all of mankind. 
And that is his plan, his plan for redemption for all of mankind. And that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for people to come and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's certainly a great thought. And and it just goes back to we often ask our guests, especially the ones that are Bible teachers, why study Bible prophecy? And of course, the first reason is it's in the Bible. It's there. Mm. Some 30% of the Bible is prophecy. So if if God wanted us to yeah. study it, that's why he put it in there. But the other reason is, if this doesn't motivate you, all these things taking place, and we know God has written the end story, and he's given it to us to let us know what's going to happen. If this doesn't motivate you, I don't know what else would. I agree wholeheartedly. You know, Daniel, by reading the the, the prophet Jeremiah, he understood the times in which he was living. That's Daniel chapter 9. You know, us as believers, as we read God's word, it's to help us to understand the times in which we're living. Uh, it's exciting times. I, I mean, and, and you have to understand how I say that. It's exciting in the fact that we are getting closer and closer every single day to the rapture of the church. Yes, it's going to be tough times, but it's going to be way tougher during the tribulation period. And, you know, what we have, the everything in God's word is to prepare us in order to live in this world until either he takes us home at death or, and, and our, our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, I, he never thought that he would go, he would die. He mm. knew he was going to go in the rapture of the church. But in any case, we are to understand what our role is here on this earth. And the other thing that really strikes me, Jimmy, is that we talked to Sharam Hadian, and he talked about the Christian community in Iran. And basically, the Christian community around the world is facing persecution, and we know that is only going to accelerate as we get closer to God's end-time scenario and the events that are going to take place in the tribulation. It really puts it at the forefront of our mind to continue to pray for them and support them. You know, Paul, in his instructions to Timothy— he said, you know, if you're not suffering persecution, then you're doing something wrong. Essentially, I'm <laughs> paraphrasing Rick, but, you know, if you are not, uh, you know, at least if people don't recognize that you're a Christian, you can't be a secret believer. In these countries, we do have it easy. We've had it easy. But I've always challenged young people when I speak in schools. I've challenged older folks. I've cha challenged parents as they teach their kids. You know, America might not be that nation that we all grew up with, a free nation. We are watching Christians around the world, whether it be in Iran, India, Pakistan, any Muslim nation where you have Christians that live there, they're being persecuted. It could happen to us here in America. As believers, people should see that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And because you are a follower, they're going to persecute you. Not because of who you are, but because of who you follow. And that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, Rick, uh, I appreciate all that you've done on the program this week. And I really do want to thank you so much for your thought-out process. Because we use a systematic way of thinking when we're thinking about the questions and the interviews that we're going to do and the topics we're going to touch. Don't we do that? We do. And Jimmy, I'm happy and blessed that I could be able to do that. Yes. Well, this week uh, we have looked at the world on the threshold <laughs> again. I'm pretty sure next week when we return on the program, we're going to see a world that's on the threshold of uh, <laughs> Armageddon or the rapture taking place immediately. And that's what we get up every day expecting. Even so, Lord, come quickly. Let's keep looking up until 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.